Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 431 with Sarah Kennedy. She is talking about some leadership principles you ought to unchain yourself from. So you'll learn one, a common leadership practice you should replace. Two, why we should value soft intelligence just as much as we value hard data. And three, how the bias for action can in fact get in the way of progress. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find it over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F431. That's the letters EP, the numerals, 431. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I hope to check out some cool stuff, such as the ability to search the full text transcripts of all 431 episodes with that little magnifying glass in the upper right corner over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's Sarah's story. Sarah Kennedy is a leadership expert, keynote speaker, and author. She works with leaders and high-potential professionals from organizations around the world to expand their capacity to innovate, influence, engage, and perform. Her new book, Leadership Unchained, Defy Conventional Wisdom for Breakthrough Performance, is now available on Amazon. For more information, check out sarahkennedy.com. Big thanks to Sarah for sharing her wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. And now, here's Sarah. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Well, I'm excited to have a chat. And I recall last time you mentioned that one of your dreams was to be a backup dancer in a hip-hop video. And I understand that dream is still alive. I'd like to know how that's evolved and if there's any particular music right now that gets that dream going for you. Yeah, it is still alive. And I think it's alive because it's one way to stay loose and to not take myself so seriously. So I think it's important for me to keep that dream alive, actually. I think probably my kids, my husband and and others are are glad that there's that part of me that tries to let loose a little bit and, and not be so serious. So that dream has served me well. Now, I wish I could say that it's found me on the stage as a backup dancer. Not yet, but I can still hold out. And I think the last time we talked, we uh, talked about artists like 50 Cent and Beyonce. (laughs) Yeah, I should say that with a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old, I'm now listening to pretty heavy rap and R&B sometimes. And knowing that you might ask me this question... It was kind of a shame that I had to look and comb through an artist that I listened to that did not have 
an explicit song. <laughs> well, keep it the dream alive. Keep it loose. That's good. Yeah. Uh, well, so you've got a, a new development in terms of uh, a book, Leadership Unchained. Yes. I'd love to hear, first and foremost, did you find particularly surprising, striking, fascinating as you're researching and putting together this one? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was confirmation bias at work here, but it seemed that even after I wrote the book or while I was in the process of writing the book, I would finish a chapter. I would finish the research, put it aside. And lo and behold, I kept seeing examples of either companies or leaders who were doing a semblance of some sort of, of what I just finished talking about in terms of uh, zigging while everybody else is zagging and how it paid off for them. And so again, it could be that I was uber open to it on a subconscious level, but I felt that I kept finding reassurances and examples for exactly what I was talking about. And that was surprising and it was exciting at the same time. Well, that's cool. And, and so I'd love to hear an example there in terms of what's a, a zag or a sort of common leadership work practice that you think is best replaced with a zig? Well, I mean, I think one of the ones that comes for me uh, last year, because it, it's not even anything I had to research. It's something that literally popped up after I already wrote my chapter on this idea of having everything earn its rightful place to be on your to-do list, right? And the chapter is not only a look at literally what makes your to-do list every day, but what kind of projects, initiatives, what is consuming your calendar and does it really belong there? Are you doing it because it makes somebody else comfortable? Are you doing it because it's always been done, but nobody would question whether that report ever got produced? Is it moving you or your team forward? And again, in the chapter, I talked about a company that years ago looked at the number of products it was selling. And so again, it wasn't just a to-do list of items every day. It was on a, a larger scale. And in order to be profitable, they made a decision that was very, very difficult, but to reduce that profit or those products from 13 down to two. Yeah. And so they had to ask themselves some really hard questions. Long story short, it ended up really working to their advantage. But what popped up several months after writing that chapter was Ford Motor making their announcement that in North America, they were going to stop making sedans. Yeah. That's a stunning announcement. But for various reasons, but some of which meant that they sat down and they really thought about what do they need to stop doing in order to grow. And that was just a prime example to me. Now, so is for, are they not manufacturing sedans in North America or they're not selling them in North America? They are not manufacturing them, okay. which means they no longer will sell them. So I will not be able to acquire like a Ford Taurus in a few years. Nope. They are stopping production of it. This is news to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just learning this. <laughs> Done. Over. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we don't know, right? We, it's too soon to tell. We don't know if that's going to be the right decision. If they indeed will benefit from that decision, we'll need a crystal ball for that. But I think 
it's very telling that they're making those kinds of moves and that leaders and companies and anybody should be thinking about that. I shared with somebody the other day that two years ago, I put together my kind of business planning meeting and I invited some people that helped me with my work. And at the time I was friends with a colleague who was really good at facilitating strategic planning meetings and business planning meetings. And he said, you know, Sarah, would it help you if I came and facilitated so that you could actually be part of the meeting and not have to do both facilitation and brainstorming or what have you? And I said, sure. Well, this man was brilliant because Soon after I talked about what I was looking for the next year, what areas of my business did I want to grow? We drew a big pie circle on the whiteboard and we put percentages of, of the areas I wanted my company to grow. And I was ready to talk about, okay, what do I need to do in order to grow? And he stopped me in my tracks. He said, no, let's first talk about what you need to stop doing in order to grow in these other arms of your business. And that was the best thing he could have asked me. Right on. Cool. Yeah. Well, that seems so that's a wise tidbit there with regard to making sure everything earns its place on the to-do list and doesn't just sort of get there. Right. Just because, you know, from another person's expectations or a habit or an old kind of a, a relic of of previous times, which is maybe not as relevant to to do now, and that there's power in identifying what to stop doing. So that's swell. So that's one example, but what's kind of like the overall you know, message or, or thesis of the book, Leadership Unchained? So the overall message is to try to keep pace with this always on push harder, do more world by taking some counterintuitive approaches. Because what I've seen in working with leaders over the years, whether that's workshops or speaking to groups of leaders or, or even coaching them, is that the conventional methods, the, the things that we were taught to be true, whether from bosses or from reading books, that approach to work and to leadership is not working anymore. And that these leaders are not necessarily getting the traction that they used to get by doing more, by following these conventional practices. So this book is really about the need to change and disrupt the way we work, think, and lead. Well, could you perhaps share some of your favorite uh, evidence or studies or, or, or whatnot that shows that the uh, particular conventional method or two uh, ain't cutting the mustard the way it used to? Yeah, sure. One of my favorites is this idea of big data, right? And, and that's because it's so relevant today. And, and so many people think it's just such a sexy thing, right? Big data. And I think what's happened is while it's helped us tremendously and helped with medications, new medications or new protocols. I think there are ways that we have almost let data rule our decisions and become, we be, we are driven by the data as opposed to just valuing it and put in its proper place. And my favorite study, or at least evidence of how this happens is a story that was 
that I read about and, and I, then I subsequently listened to a TED talk by a woman who's a cultural ethnographer and her name is Trisha Wayne. She told a fascinating story about how she was hired in 2009 by Nokia and they hired her to find out about a particular consumer group that was at this point that was the Chinese population and in particular Chinese immigrants and to study what their preferences were in terms of smartphones and like what a cultural ethnographer does she immersed herself in their culture she spent I think up to a year working in the rice paddies. She went to the local internet cafes and observed and talked to people uh, within that culture. And what she found was very stunning. And that was that the need or the want, more importantly, for an iPhone and the desire to own an iPhone was so prevalent that these Chinese immigrants were willing to spend half of what they earned in a month just to have one. That's quite the discovery. <laughs> it was a huge discovery for her. And I'm summarizing the study, but... So let's quadruple the price. You could get away with it, guys. Take them for all they're worth. Well, what's interesting is at the time, Nokia was building high-end, multifaceted smartphones. And what she wanted them to know and what she came back to share with the executives about her study was that they should put some of their efforts behind building a lower end smartphone, that that's where the market was and that, that they would benefit from doing so. Now, sadly, her small data set was compared to an extremely large data set that was more hard data, right? And they really didn't move in that direction because they thought that her data wasn't sufficient enough and that it wasn't quote unquote hard enough. And they did not go in that route. And we all know what happened to Nokia, right? So that is one example and what she submits in her TED talk and in her research is that we need to value the immeasurable or what I like to call soft intelligence as much as we do the hard data. That's a cool story and lesson. I guess I'm not quite following how her big discovery was that their desire for iPhone is so powerful that they'd spend half their income. And therefore the recommendation was make lower end phones. I, I don't, I think I'm missing a connecting piece there. Yes. Well, I mean, so she, like they're willing to spend big money, but but don't try to get that money. I, I'm not following exactly. They would do so, right? But she knew that if they would change their strategy to make lower end phones, that even more people would buy phones. She was not in any way saying that they should keep building the higher end smartphones. Because remember, these people worked in rice paddy, so even half of what they earned wasn't necessarily enough for the product that Nokia was building at the time. Okay, there we go. That's my missing link. Okay. I thought they were immigrants into the U.S. No, and I should have corrected that. They weren't, I think I used the word immigrants, migrants. 
Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yes. I hear you. So it's sort of like, hey, they're willing to spend half their income, but half their income isn't cutting it. Yes. Therefore, if you have something at this price point, right. you know, you'll be in great shape because uh, folks will, will spend half their income and get a great phone that has a lot of cool features, but maybe not everything and the kitchen sink, which would, you know, dwarf what they can do. That's exactly right. So that's a discovery that uh, you can make when you're you're going deep into immersing yourself in, in a culture and an environment, but that you may very well miss if you're just looking at sort of, I don't know, billions of scans of uh, retail consumer electronic transactions and, and what those are telling you. Right, right. And a lot of times what I see happen is that we love to survey our customers, for example. And when we survey our customers, we rarely do so by asking open-ended questions. It's usually some sort of a Likert scale. Rank us as a company uh, on a scale of one to 10. And we take away from that how the customer evaluates us or our products or services. But what we miss are the nuances. We don't know why they're rating us the way they're rating us. We may not know exactly how they interpreted the question, but we're willing to go out and make decisions based on these numeric conclusions. And so I'm just saying we need to balance that by getting up behind our desk and whether it's with customers or with employees, we need to do our own field research, right? We need to maybe observe our employees or customers in their natural habitat using our products or services or working in our environment. We need to maybe solicit stories from those that are impacted by our services, by our products, by the way we operate as a company. We need to make sure that we're including, like I said earlier, the soft intelligence, the human factor. We need to be asking what might we be missing in this data? What conversations Perhaps are we not having because we're relying solely on this data? Does that make sense? And that's the one you used for your profile. And so that really gets me, I'm right with you there when it comes to, we, we drive these big old decisions from these these Likert scales, these numerical things, when in fact, uh, maybe, whatever, just making up numbers, 90% of folks chose a six on your seven point Likert scale, but uh those people didn't quite know what you meant by this thing, and they assumed it meant that thing, and therefore the six it means nothing, right? B because they are not, weren't even on the same page that you had had thought and hoped and assumed that they were on. So I'm right with you. So so tell me, what are some of the the pro tips for having the best of both worlds in your decision making and research? Well, I mean, I think one of the things you can do is if you're gonna collect data make sure that maybe you have a way to do both quantitative and qualitative gathering, right? So if you're gonna do a customer survey, maybe you also bring in a customer subset to then talk to you about why they rated you in certain ways or have a focus group around some of the same types of data sets so that you can pick up all the nuances behind the ratings. I think those are really important. Some companies will interview potential customers at the point of purchase. So they haven't really purchased your products or somebody else's, 
but you can maybe understand what they're using in terms of comparisons, how they're making their decisions between you and perhaps your competitors. If we're looking at employees, I know that for an example that was used for years is this idea of exit interviews, right? And understanding why people are leaving your company to get better informed. But how about asking people what really drove you to make the decision to come with our company? What was it about that, the way we engaged you with us through this process, helped you decide to come work for us? Those are the kinds of things we're asking things at a much more qualitative level and not just quantitative. Yeah, that's right on. Okay, so so there we go. That's one piece of conventional practice like the numerical quantitative big data rule all that can lead you astray if you uh, kind of uh, overlook the other parts to the picture. So are there some uh, other pieces of, of conventional leadership wisdom practice that can be potentially problematic and that you would amend just as we've done here. Yeah. Well, the the very first chapter I talk about that is one everybody can resonate with is this bias for action. (laughs) And it's something I prided myself on through my years in corporate, right? That I was the person that could get things done. It was somewhat innate, but something I also trained myself to, to be very much about productivity and taking action. And this is still a work in progress for me, but what I've seen is that that actual bias for action, that tendency to be always moving forward can actually get in the way. It can get in the way of innovation. It can get in the way of figuring out how to keep up with this just overwhelm of information, of being able to make good decisions in this instant response world. So bringing this down to the individual, my discovery and my suggestion to leaders who are trying to keep pace and for anybody who's trying to keep pace is that they consider making an unbreakable appointment with themselves, whether it's daily or weekly. And this is an appointment not This isn't mindfulness. This isn't meditation, although I believe in those things. This is about just stepping back and looking at everything you've consumed that week in meetings, what you've read, data, reports, and letting that percolate so that you can really make meaning of what it is. You can separate the wheat from the chaff and you can make connections where there seemingly may have not been connections before. That is the kind of sort of counterintuitive practice or zigging while everyone else is zagging. And in fact, what I always say is the willingness to sit still while everyone else is in motion. Gotcha. Cool. Well, well, tell me, Sarah, any other key things you'd like to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear some of your favorite things? Well, I think that the only other one that's, again, a work in progress for me is, is this idea that I brought up right at the beginning, which is making sure that you put as much emphasis into what you're not going to do, <laughs> what you're going to stop doing as much as what you're going to start doing. I think that's an easy thing to do. And I always encourage and challenge people that I'm working with or speaking with is to start your day tomorrow. And instead of looking at your to-do list, try a stop doing list. Just try it on for size. See how it feels. 
I dig it. And as you, in your own life and, and work with clients, what are some of the, the things that tend to appear most frequently on stop doing lists? One of the first things that I see a lot is that I'm going to stop endlessly checking my emails. That always bubbles up. People admit that they don't put their emails on, they don't close out their emails and that it's an incessant checking of their phone, of their social media, that they're literally going to close off and not be tethered to those things. The other is they're no longer going to value themselves based on somebody else's expectations. They're not going to let somebody else's expectations or I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but they're going to start to sort of take charge of their own calendar, if you will. And I know that that seems hard to do, right? We've got people who are relying on us and that have expectations, but I think there are some things we can do to drive our own calendars instead of letting somebody else do it. Lovely. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, I think it's fitting with uh, the topic today. And it's one that was shared by Warren Buffett in one of his speeches several years ago. And it's quite brilliant. The chains of habit are too light to be felt until they are too heavy to be broken. That is one of my favorite quotes. Yes, I believe he is correct. <laughs> it's really thought provoking. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, what do you know? Here I have a habit. <laughs> yeah, he can't take full credit for that. Apparently, he took part of a very similar quote from a, a gentleman named Samuel Johnson. He had read something very similar years ago, but he made it his own. I mean, th those are his words. Those are Warren Buffett's words. Cool. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Well, again, favorite study is one that I uncovered while writing this book, and it was from the Journal of Economic Psychology. And... It's interesting. The researchers studied videotapes of goalkeepers, and these were top soccer league goalkeepers. And they analyzed 286 penalty kicks to determine the probability distribution of kick direction and then the responses they elicited. In other words, what they discovered was that the optimal strategy for goalkeepers was to remain in the center of the net during a penalty kick not moving to the left, not moving to the right. And by doing so, they had a 33% chance of blocking the ball. But what they discovered is that these top goalkeepers only stayed in the center 6% of the time. And this study was exactly about our bias for action. And that is what was propelling them to move either to the right or to the left. The idea of doing nothing and standing still, even if they knew that it was going to increase their chances of blocking the goal, didn't work. Again, that uh, bias took over. Oh, yeah, that study is so fascinating and, and because the notion is that you look like a moron. Exactly. <laughs> it's like you just, like, if the goal goes in, and you stayed in the middle and moved nowhere. The like the the crowd is just like eats you alive. Like, well, come on, lazy. Right. What right. do your job? Exactly, like, exactly. It doesn't quite work to yell back. It's statistically optimal for me to stay at the. <laughs> it's hard to argue with the screaming crowd, but uh, that is a good one. Thank you. Exactly. And, and how about a favorite book? This is so hard. There are so many books that I like. I, I think one of the best books. It's been years, but it's The Big Leap. And it's, it's by Guy Hendricks. And it's probably one that's a cross between a business book and a personal 
growth book. And I think that's why I liked it so much because I'll either read business books or I'll read for sheer pleasure. And this one kind of had a mix of both. So I really liked it. Okay. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool so that it helps you be awesome at your job? I got to say that this sounds so trite, but LinkedIn, (laughs) I mean, I think about what I do with that tool. Like every meeting I have phone or in person, I can go in and I can read about that person. I can find things that we may have in common to talk about. I can appear more prepared or in the know just by looking at some of their history or what it is they do, what their role is. So yeah, I mean, it's just a fascinating tool. Uh, yeah. I'm a huge, huge fan myself uh, at the premium and I use it yes. and I love it. And yes. Hey, go, go reach out to uh, Sarah and myself on LinkedIn listeners. Yes. For me, the secret password is either a boy band lyric Or, hey, Pete, I like the podcast, just to help differentiate you from the inbound sales funnel regeneration activity that I've been getting more and more of lately. As have I, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure LinkedIn's going to find out how to crack down because they're brilliant over there. Yes. But anyway, yes, LinkedIn is good. We are agreed on that point. And how about a favorite habit? Something that you do that helps you be awesome? Oh, you're going to laugh. Um, when I read this favorite habit, I didn't look at the helps me be awesome. Although I guess I could find a way to argue it. This is so silly, but my favorite habit is that I make my bed right when I get up every morning. Oh yeah. The Navy SEAL guy is all about that. Yeah. Well, the reason I like that habit is because I love getting into a completely freshly made bed. There's nothing worse than getting into an unmade bed. And so I refuse to do it. And so I guess I could argue that it helps me get awesome sleep, which means I could be awesome at my job. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They, they quote it back to you. Oh, one that comes to mind is when I tell people to be a renegade in their ideas and their approaches, but not in their behavior. Lovely. Thank you. Yeah. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them to? I would point them to my website. Sarah Canaday. There's no H on Sarah and Canaday is spelled just like Canada with a Y at the end. Or as you said, connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I'm going to circle back to what I said earlier. Get out a piece of paper or your phone and jot down one thing starting tomorrow that you're going to stop doing. All right, Sarah, thanks for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Excellent. Glad to be here. I really appreciated what Sarah had to say about hard data and how it is powerful and it is weighty and it is worthy of our careful consideration, but it's not just like the end all be all. You can't just bring a number and say, that's it. You know, it's open and shut because there's often way more to the story in terms of how was the question asked? How do people interpret the way the question was asked, what are the questions that were not asked and would they answer them differently, you know, and all these things. 
So it really pays off just to make sure that you're not just sort of checking your brain and saying, well, that's what the numbers say, do do do, but think about how the numbers got there and ensure that you're really wisely considering all the areas. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links, the items we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F431. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Greg Buston. He's talking about some cool tales of decision-making and how that applies to you improving your own decision-making. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.